Welcome to another edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com. John Schmelk, Lance Meadow with you. The phone number is 201-939-4513. Hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. It's all presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app. Um, Lance, good to see you. I've been off for a few days. Good to be back in the saddle. Uh, I know you and Paul had a chance to talk about the Mike Remmer signing yesterday. Um, I'm going to throw my two cents in now very quickly before we get to the other news around the NFL, but we just got a doozy. So uh, we we will talk about that and take your calls at 201-939-4513. Look, Remmers is a solid player. He's not going to be a pro bowler. I think he'll fit nicely next to Kevin Zeitler. Uh, He's certainly an upgrade, I think, over Chad Wheeler if Remmers does, in fact, win that battle at right tackle. Uh, talking to him, you can see my interview on Giants.com. While he played some guard last year, played left tackle a few years ago, he does consider right tackle his natural position, and I think it's a real good fit given the structure of the rest of the offensive line. Yeah, I agree with you. I think versatility is key. That comes to mind, John, first, as you mentioned. He could play four of the five positions. That's not to say that the Giants are going to experiment with him there. I think he's penciled in at right tackle to compete with the Chad Wheelers of the world, the George Asafo Adjays of the world. But in a pinch, it doesn't hurt because you can't go into a season thinking all five guys are going to last 16 games. I'll tell you, versatile veteran depth is really one of the it's really always it, key. It, it important things that hey. you can... <laughs> You always appeal to me when you have those check marks. You do. So Mike Remmers gets multiple check marks in that department. So obviously, I know Paul did good film work on Remmers. He watched a lot of his snaps. I haven't good? A chance I don't to know. Do that's yet. debatable. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Paul did a lot of film work okay. on Remmers. I think that's better. I said. haven't done mine yeah. yet. But I want to throw some stats out there from Pro Football Focus on, on some of their offensive line rankings. So uh, the guys over there were kind enough to send me some of these numbers. Just FYI. Um, as a right tackle between 2015 and 2017, that's where he played 92% of his snaps before 2018 when he was put at guard. Um, I'm not going to give you his grade, but he was ranked 16th among right tackles with his grade. Because the, you know, the number doesn't really matter, but he was ranked 16th, so that's literally right in the middle. That's literally average. Um, he was 19th in pass block grade, 11th in run block grade, and that's among right tackles with at least 1,500 regular season and postseason snap. So among the right tackles that played a lot, he was literally like right in the middle of of the field, which is exactly what we're talking about, a solid player that's going to help you. Um, as a pass blocker during those seasons of right tackle, he allowed 73 total pressures, which was 12th among right tackles, and 8 sacks, which was 10th among right tackles. And his 7.5 pressure percentage allowed was 19th among those right tackles. So, look, he's a good, solid player, and I have some individual grades against the NFC East, but it's not much different than his overall one, so I'm not going to waste your time with those. But, look, he's going to be a solid player there. Is he going to go shut down, you know, Demarcus Lawrence and, and lock him in one-on-one for a full game? No, but very few players do that. I know people point to a Super Bowl against Von Miller. Well, Von Miller's Von Miller for a reason, all right? He's not going to face Von Miller every week. So he's a very good player. He's going to help. And I think, I look at this offensive line, Lance, and for the first time since 2010, maybe 11, I don't look at it and say, boy, that's a hole. I don't see a hole anymore. Are they perfect? Are they a top five line? Maybe not. But I, I do not see a, a place where I'm like, boy, that scares the hell out of me. The closest thing is center, but we'll see how Pulley and, and, and Jalapio go in their competition. I think Pulley was... Solid last year in in the time that he played. 
well, he's I, fine. I think he got a lot of experience across the line, John. That's what jumps out to yeah. me, especially now on the right side. You, you put two polished guys in Zeitler and Remmers next to each other. The center position is to be decided. Jalapio doesn't have a great deal of starting experience. He's been in the league, but he hasn't been a starter very long. Pulley a little bit longer with the Chargers, so they'll compete. Hernandez coming along in his second year, and then Nate Solder. We know where he stands and his veteran presence. So I think he got a nice mixture on the line. And to me, you know, the right side of the line is going to tell a lot how far this unit goes. There's been probably the most turnover, John, on the right side of the line over the last few years. I mean, look at what started last year. It was Eric Flowers and Patrick Omame, and that didn't even last very long. So, And before that, you have Bobby Hart. I mean, it goes on and on, yeah. So, I mean, can Remmers and Zeitler stay healthy, assuming... Remmers wins out at the right tackle job. Can they build chemistry with one another? You know, that certainly is a positive sign. But just real quickly, getting back to your point, yeah, I mean, as far as how he fared against Von Miller in the Super Bowl or where he ranks, it's May 15th. People need to provide some perspective for themselves. What did you expect to get on the free agent market, okay? An elite offensive lineman is not on the market. You know why? Because teams don't let go of those players. And if he's on the market, he's getting a lot more money than than what they had to give Rummers on a one-year deal. 100%. So it's all relative to what's out there. And based on what's out there on the market, based on, I think, Shermer and Gettleman's knowledge of the player— staying on top of him from a health department perspective, it's all understandable that this is a good fit at this point, and he's going to have a more than reasonable opportunity to come in and start because he's competing with Chad Wheeler and Georgia Safawadji, who don't have a lot of experience, but... And if you want to throw in Brian Mahalik into Brian that Mahalik, that's true. We, we shouldn't leave him mm-hmm. out. That's fair. A player who was on the roster last year did get some experience and some playing time. 6'8", big guy. Yeah. So they're going to have some options, and options is a good thing. I don't think anybody, whether you're a seasoned veteran or a young guy, should be handed a job. You know, that was one of the things, by the way, and I think this topic is important and relates to how many phone calls, John, did we field over the years about Eric Flowers not having enough competition, right? Fans would get irritated that, well, he was just penciled in because of where he was selected. So now you bring in a veteran like Remmers, you have a bunch of young guys, and you're telling everybody, compete. Let the best man win. Do you find that people are annoyed about this signing? Did you get calls yesterday where people were unhappy with it? No, I, I think that... That would surprise me. No, I'm not making up an argument. <laughs> Look at our producers want to start with us too here. Dave, I'll deal with you after the program. I got enough on my plate right now running from show to show. You believe this guy? Unbelievable. On a Wednesday at... 12.09 p.m. Wow. Eastern. He Dave, chooses Dave to Dominic try to get under my skin. Dave Dominic hit a nerve there. I yeah, I could it. tell. Now yeah. he's cranky. Well, Thank I'm not you, cranky. Dave. I'm always cranky. Oh, yeah, but you're cranky now. No, listen, <laughs> not making up a narrative. I, I, I think, no, most people, I would say, I was are just curious because I, with this. I, was, I was curious what your phone calls were the last couple no, days. No, I, I would not classify them as negative at all. I think a lot of people are optimistic that there's some change and there's some competition. I was bringing up the Eric Flowers oh, I narrative. Okay, I got you. Which clearly our production team let in one ear and out the other. That's what I was bringing up, where there was some negative connotations, okay? Did we clarify that for everybody in the room? Considering we have an army, clearly, of people, Dave makes up an entire team of individuals now. Unbelievable. You just beat Dave's day. This is great. I'm glad. Listen, right. I- I'm trying to give him as much publicity as humanly possible. Do you want to take a couple anyway. phone calls before we get to the Jet stuff, or, or do you want to do the Jet stuff first? Why don't we knock out the Jet stuff here right. and then leave open the discussion? With well, Taylor. folks, look, we're not doing this because of the Jets. It's a big NFL piece of news. And, friends, we don't get a lot of it in the middle of May. So we're going to run with it and talk about it a little bit. So Adam Schefter reported about 37 minutes ago, or according to my Twitter timeline, that the Jets fired Mike McCagnin and VP of Player Personnel Brian Heimerdinger. 
Is that Mike Heimerdinger's son, I'm guessing? I was thinking that probably is a relationship. Um, McCagnon had two years left on his contract, and uh, Adam Gase was named interim GM. And just keep this in mind, folks. Mike McCagnon just hired Adam Gase. He spent nearly $100 million in free agency. He made six draft picks, if I'm not mistaken, including the third overall pick in the NFL draft. And... Two weeks later, or three weeks later, they fire him. The timing is just confusing as heck. And I haven't read this yet, so I'm going to read it for the first time. Uh, Chairman and CEO of the Jets, Christopher Johnson, sent out a message, so I will read that. This is, I guess, their official release in terms of their decision to let go Mike McCagnin. This morning, I informed Mike that he was being relieved of his duties as general manager of the team, effective immediately. Mike helped to execute the strategic vision of the organization during the last four seasons and especially the past few months. However, I came to the decision to make a change after much thought and a careful assessment of what would be in the best long-term interest of the New York Jets. I will start a search for our new GM immediately in the interim. Coach Gates will be the acting general manager. I would like to thank Mike for his time and efforts during his tenure, and I wish only the best for him and his wife, Betty. So I guess my two questions here, Lance, is that one, a statement, I suppose. Co- uh, Adam Gase was the GM in Miami, as well as the head coach. So he has done this before. Adam Schefter threw out the report that he and Joe Douglas, who's with the Eagles, are very close. So that's a rumor out there who the Jets yep. might talk to. But I guess my question would be, is what changed for Christopher Johnson between January 1st, when the Jets season ended, they decided to move on from Todd Bowles, but keep Mike McCagnin, and today? What changed? Well, my guess would be I think tensions really rose, John, during the actual draft itself. And there were reports that McCagnin and Gase were maybe not yes. getting along so well. Well, and last week at a press conference, Adam Gase was asked about those reports and got a little fiery, got a little irritated. You know what? I missed that. What did he say? Yeah, he said he was pissed off. I mean, he used that exact word. He words. was mad about the reports he was or mad. he was mad at McCagnin? No, he was mad about the reports. Okay, I got you. And he was mad that those reports are circulating and... He also defended saying that he doesn't think there's anything wrong with people in the front office, coaches and executives having some disagreement. He used the term excitement. It adds to the process. Once again, I'm using his words, well, in his fairness, terminology. I just, I, the tension you had right a few minutes ago was exciting for me. Yes, so and it will add further it. excitement after yes. the show for <laughs> what people are not going to be able to see on the program. <laughs> but that's a whole other thing. But getting back to the point at hand here, so I think tension rose and accelerated through the draft. And I think perhaps, at least this is what I would do if I were Christopher Johnson. I'm giving you a hypothetical. Right. I would try to sit them down after the draft and say, hey, guys, I know things got a little out of whack. You know, what can we do to try to repair it? And I don't think there was any point where he felt there was some common ground between the two. He ultimately then had to make a choice. And listen, you never want to see anybody lose their job, but considering they just brought in Adam Gase, John, they're in the middle of the offseason program, I think the last thing you do is fire your head coach because that would put you in a much more precarious spot. No, no, As opposed to a general manager who, yes, did a lot of the heavy lifting, but at least you know the draft is over and somebody could very well take over and help control some transactions here or there. So it's just so odd. Very odd. You just hired the head coach, and the GM was the driving force behind that hire? May, or, or, you know, maybe this was more the owner's hire than it was the GM's hire. Maybe well, that's another good question. Maybe maybe that's how this process went. Maybe McCagden gave his recommendation, 
Who knows who he recommended? Yeah. Remember, there were rumors that they tried to offer the job to other people before Adam Gates took the job. Maybe McCagney wanted to hire one of those other guys, and he got stuck with Gates. So what I, the point I was going to make before this thing popped in my head was this should be the honeymoon period for a coach and a GM. 100%. A game hasn't been played. There's nothing bad. For there to be tension this early, it's like when you get married. If you get married and you're fighting on the honeymoon, yeah, you got problems. Problem. <laughs> okay? Yeah, not a good sign. You got big, big problems. So maybe McCagnon wasn't the guy that really made the final decision on Gase. No, I think that's a great point. And the more and more you read between the lines, perhaps it seems like that. Because you figure you go through the interview process, you're going to hash out perhaps differences in philosophies. You're going to make it very clear, John, this yes. is how I see my job. This is how I see your job. And for it to get to this point leads me to believe that probably ownership felt very strongly about Adam Gase. Not to say McCagnon didn't think he was a good coach, but it may have not been his first choice Correct. in the entire process. And this is another reason why relationships are so important in the NFL and why it's no coincidence that when a coach gets a gig, John, he brings in players and coaches that he has established relationships with. And let's not forget about this, speaking of McCagnon. When they hired McCagnon, remember, one of the things that the Jets said was give Rex another year. And he had to inherit a head coach. And then ultimately Rex was let go. They brought in Todd Bowles. But normally what you do is you allow the general manager to have an opportunity to hire a coach. So now what they're going to do is they're going to do the whole thing all over again. <laughs> they're going to now bring in a new general manager right. who you would assume is right. going to have an established relationship, John, at this point with Adam Gase. That's why Douglas's name has been thrown out. Because Correct. can you bring in? Can you imagine them bringing in a general manager at this point? He has no established relationship with Adam Gase. Christopher Johnson well, goes... Give Gase another year, and then all of a sudden you're back to square one. Well, here's the question, though. If maybe they're going to give Gase a lot of the power in deciding who the GM is. I is think it, that's a safe assumption. Because in How some, can you not? Is in, in some of these situations, the coach can sometimes be a more powerful voice in the organization than the GM. There are teams that are organized that way. Like the, the 49ers, for example. Do we know that John Lynch is more power than Kyle Shanahan? I don't know if we know that. I think, you know, it depends on, on the organization, which is why, you know, it was a good thing when the Giants allowed Dave Gettleman in his first year. And even if you disagree with the with, with who the hires were as a fan, the point being that the GM in his first year got to pick his coach. He didn't have to inherit the one that was here. Yep. And they started together, and that's how the best way to do these things Insane. usually is. So we'll see what happens with the Jets. But I thought it was an interesting piece of news. We should touch on it. And if you want to talk about that or anything else, please give us a call at 201-939-4513. Hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. We will do a much better job of getting to your tweets the next few months as we head into training camp. But for now, it's all presented by Coors Light. Let's get to the phones. Thomas in Richmond, Virginia will lead us off. Hi, Thomas. Hey, guys. How's it going? We're great, Thomas. Right. What's on your mind? Um, um, I've been watching this show for like a couple of years. You know, I'm a youngster. I'm 18 years old, and you know, I've been watching this show like every morning. Like, well, thank I you for that. Thanks people, for tuning in. We yeah, appreciate my it. People, uh, call me an old head because I wake up and listen to this podcast. But, <laughs> yeah, but I don't. I only have two questions. Um, what are Ross Smith's uh, chances of taking the uh, number two spot in the running back position, and what's Indomaku um, two chances of? Uh, are signing with the Giants. That's all. Hey, appreciate the call, Thomas. Right. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for being such a loyal listener. I mean, there's nothing better to get your energy up in the morning than Paul Dottino. So huh. I get it. That's Makes your sense. cup of coffee and tea right there. Now, if you want to be cranky in the morning, you get Lance Meadow and John Schmilk. But Dottino can give you some energy. Yes. Exactly. We give you a little bit um, of everything. Absolutely. Um, all right. So 
it's a good question. On the Sue thing, uh, the Giants would probably have to free up more cap space to get that done. I think Sue's probably going to be looking still for a, a rather large contract. I think the Giants are okay with their cap space right now, but they want to carry some money into the season like Dave Gettleman spoke about in the uh, at the Combine earlier in the year. So that, would I think, would be difficult, and I'm not sure with your three young guys that are yeah. interior players already, Lance, with Dexter Lawrence, B.J. Hill, and Dalvin Tomlinson, if you're going to go out there and spend some money, like the Eagles signed Zach Brown a couple weeks ago, I think that would be something that maybe made, would have made a little bit more sense in terms of position for a veteran than a guy like Sue. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think they want to develop those guys in the front three. I, I don't think they want to bring in a veteran like Indomitian Sue who, I mean, listen, I don't know at this point in his career how much playing time he's looking for, but I'm sure he's not necessarily looking for an opportunity, John, where he's simply maybe a rotational player here or there or mentoring young guys. I think he wants to play. I don't know if the Giants can answer his call in that department. So I think if you're going to bring in another defensive lineman, it's a veteran who sort of has had that complimentary role during his career, not necessarily as high caliber of endomic and Sue. By the way, Andrew Paul Schwartz in the New York Post will join us around 1240. I'm not sure if I mentioned that off the top, but if I didn't, there it is. So he'll be with us at 1240 to close out the show. The other question he had, Lance, was about Rod Smith. I haven't had a chance to talk about him coming here to the Giants. I don't know if you have. Um... You know, I think he's a back that'll get you the yards that are there. He's not a super athlete. Uh, he's a bigger guy. And I know a lot of people have have now tried to talk about it, and I talked about it last year. I think I'm off it now. But if you're going to give Saquon Barkley a break, when do you give him a break? Do you give him a break on short yardage? Well, here's the thing. Barkley was a short yardage back last year, right? The Giants were literally the best short yardage team in the NFL. Better than any other team on third and one and fourth and one. I think they've almost succeeded every time they ran the ball in that situation. So I don't think they're going to go away from Barkley in those situations because they want their best players on the field in the red zone in those goal-to-goal situations where you have to get a touchdown. So could Rod Smith be the second running back? I would be surprised if he beat out Wayne Gallman. Could they find a role on this team for him? Sure. But I think that has to do with Elijah Penny. Do they think he's a running back slash fullback? Can he do both? I think it's kind of an interesting way to look at because Rod Smith, I believe, was a fullback at Ohio State, right? He was. He mistaken. started out that way, yeah. correct, and they sort of converted him back and forth. Yeah. So maybe he and Elijah Penny will compete for that slash role, fullback slash running back. That's possible, too. I, I didn't think about it. I think that's an interesting point you bring up, that maybe he's more competition for Elijah Penny than necessarily the running back Than Wayne Gallman, maybe. Yeah, and keep in mind, Rod Smith also has the ability to catch the ball out of the backfield, which is a must if you're going to be a fullback on this roster. Which Penny does as well. So Mm -hmm. that actually is something that I think is a really good point in in terms of how the competition plays out. I will say this. My initial reaction is I think Rod Smith is a solid player, somebody that's going to add some value to this roster. I was surprised, though, that they parted ways with George Martin. Robert Martin, excuse me, to make room. George Martin's still in the Ring of Honor, folks. Don't worry. (laughs) You know what? I don't even watch Game of Thrones. I don't even know why I threw his name out. Well, I thought I was a Giants defensive end, George Martin. Well, I was also going towards that direction, too. (laughs) I didn't know where you were going to take it. But yes, George Martin, a former Giants defensive lineman, too. I was thinking more of what has been enamored across the board in recent days with social media. Another thing that has Lance annoyed, by well, the way. It, that's a whole It's a thing. very, very long list, <laughs> if you yes, haven't noticed. Yes, it's a long list. We don't have enough time remaining on no, this show to don't. get to everything mm-hmm. I had on the agenda. But getting back to the running back situation, I was surprised that Robert Martin was let go because I thought maybe they'd want to see how he continues to develop, John, especially since you have a 90-man roster at this point. But you've got Paul Perkins, you've got Wayne Gallman, you've got Saquon Barkley, and now Smith enters the picture. And have four guys likely competing for three jobs. The Elijah Penny-Rod Smith dynamic, I think, is something to watch. But whoever 
gets the second job or the third job, and, and this goes back to an initial point that you were making, John, Saquon Barkley had about 74% of the carries last season. There was not many opportunities for anybody not named Saquon Barkley. Goldman came in here or there. But if you expect, like, they're bringing in Smith, and he's now going to come in on third and goal, fourth and goal, and they're going to take Saquon Barkley off the field, no, I completely disagree with that sentiment. But I think you want somebody that has enough versatility that, God forbid, Barkley has to miss a series or two, miss a game, you have somebody that could be productive. Well, I think the question is, too, and I think it's an interesting conversation to have, is what percentage of the snaps is a good percentage for Barkley? You know, does it... You know, running backs have a short shelf life, right? How much of a difference does it make if Barkley has 325 carries versus 300 carries over the course of the year? Did two carries a game mean that much? Does Over the long run. Yeah. Does 85% of the snaps versus 75% of the snaps, does that make his career last nine years instead of seven? So I don't know. If it doesn't have an impact, then just give him the ball as much as you can. So I don't know if there's a lot of analytics on this, on, on how many carries. I'm sure people can do studies, you know, equal workload and how much workload can a running back take? Is it dependent on the player? There's a lot of different ways to do this. So I think obviously the team's better with, with, with Barkley on the field, but what's the cutoff point where, A, if he's getting less snaps, is his performance better? If he's getting less snaps, does he become better for longer? Does his career last longer? Or is that not an impact? Does Barkley get better the more carries he gets? So I think that's an interesting line the Giants are going to have to figure out as to when Barkley comes on and off the field over the course of the year. Well, and snaps is an interesting term as opposed to carries. I threw out the percentage of carries, but remember, Barkley's involved in the passing game. So, I mean, that impacts his workload. You can't just look at him. No matter what analytics you use to analyze Barkley's performance, you have to look at what he does as a runner and what he does as a receiver because he's on the field more often than not in both capacities. Yeah, so I think that'll be interesting in terms of how they use the backup running backs when they use them. Last year, they seemed to want to give Gallman a series at a time yeah, and kind of give Barkley a longer blow. And I think I understand that because it gives Barkley a chance to recover a little bit if he has a series where he doesn't have to go out there. But then again, every time last year when Barkley wasn't on the field, we got phone calls. What are you doing? I was going to bring that up. What are you doing? Oh, you can't set the guy down. (laughs) Everyone wants him to play 100% of the snaps. That's not how it works. Well, you know the game that I'm going to bring up. It's the Philly game. If you remember, right. that was the game where a lot of fans and a lot of callers we heard from were irritated because Coleman was, was out for that drive. It was an early fourth quarter drive where I think they got the ball like on their own like two or three yard line, right? When they buried on a punt. Pretty deep. And Goldman actually, if you remember, and I'm going off memory, so if I'm not exactly accurate, don't necessarily tweet at me and tell me whatever it is. But Idiot. he was productive, if you remember. And then they had some false starts. They had some offensive line issues. I think Correct. Eli took a sack. They got into third and longs. And that, to me, was what forced the punts. Not necessarily Goldman being ineffective. He actually was productive if you go back and look at that game. He was. So, it's fun. But Rod Smith will be in the mix there and we'll see exactly where he competes. And I think the Elijah Penny factor is interesting because I hadn't honestly really thought about it. It kind of just popped in my head as we were no, talking about it. No, I thought that was a great point you brought up because I admit I didn't think about that either. 201-939-4513. Dan Salamone's funny. Uh, let's go to Doug in Rochester. He's up next. Hey, Doug. Hey, hey what's going on, guys? We're good, Doug. What's on your mind, pal? Hey, um, yesterday, Lance, you was on with Paul, and um, I want to talk about two things. First of all, I think Dave Gesman is uh, like a mad scientist. He, did, he dissected the Giants, and he's putting them back together. 
So it's in a good way, you know. He says like, a lot of people think you made some bad decisions, but I don't think so. Well, Doug, I'll tell you, all I know is that the them apart and putting them back together. Yeah, all I know is that the the roster looks a lot different today than it did the day Gettleman walked in the building. So uh, there yeah. certainly has been a. Uh, new rebuilding of the roster. I'll use the word, a transformation yeah. of the roster. We'll see whether yeah. or not it's good based on the win-loss record this year. Yeah. And thing, you guys just touched on what I was going to talk about, the carries for Barkley. Um, last year on with Paul yesterday, Paul thinks uh, Barkley's going to get 90 over 90 receptions again this year. <laughs> but if you, look at, if you look at the addition to the offensive line, and if the offensive line pulls together a match and Barkley run, starts out running the football during the beginning of the season, getting much yardage, I think his carries go up and his receptions go down. It depends how if he starts running the football. I don't think Pat Sherman's going to stop running. He's going to hand it off to him more. You know, for his receptions are going to go down. Well, and, you know, so. well, you know, to me, a good comparison is Christian McCaffrey and how the Panthers have utilized him. And if you look at McCaffrey's receptions numbers, Doug, you know, they haven't really phased him out of the receiving game, even though perhaps, you know, they're looking to develop him into more of a runner as the years go along. I actually would side with Paul. I think it's very feasible that Saquon Barkley is the leading reception guy for the Giants this season. I think Golden Tate is actually going to pass Sterling Shepard for second. I mean, Tate's a guy that could easily get 90. I don't know if he's going to get there, but I could see Tate second and Shepard and Engram battling for third place. I I could see it going anyway. Agree, going take around sixty. Sterling Shepard, they're gonna be around each other. But I think Barkley's gonna go down for ninety, and Evan Ingram's gonna go up some. Well, but when when you say Doug, Carey's gonna go up a little bit. Doug, when you say Barkley's gonna go down though, what what are we talking about in your mind? No, I'm just curious. Do you see the eighties, or do you think he's gonna dip to like seventy five? What are you thinking? Yeah, I'm thinking if he runs the football starting out in the season with the new, with the good, the offensive line is good, and they're opening up holes, and he's he's gaining yards. I don't see Pat Sherman getting away from that. I think he's going to hand it off to him more, and then therefore the receptions are going to go down. If they're gaining yards, if Barkley's running eight yards on first down and stuff, why do why throw him the football? That's what I'm saying. Well, you want to mix he's things up, you can argue. And I think that's a valid point, and, and I would agree with you. What I brought up on yesterday's show or the day before, I said, you know, everybody's analyzing the improvement of the offensive line. I said, with a guy like Saquon Barkley, his talent, if you allow him to get to the second layer of the defense, you have faith yeah. that he can win his individual battles. So you would expect, yes, his running production to go up, but I don't look at it, Doug, so much that, well, if he's getting eight yards then they're just going to continue to run it. I also well, look at, they well, also want to showcase him in a more. different role. The guys pulling, the guys pulling more this year and taking out linebackers and he just has to, he has to take these in front of them. And I can just, I can just, you know, I think the running game is going to be better. Just overall better this year than last year. That's what I'm saying. Well, I certainly you, think that's the ultimate goal and appreciate, appreciate the phone the call, call Doug. Doug. All right, I did a little quick math here for you, Lance. Um... I don't think Barkley's numbers in the passing game are going to go down, too. And here's why. We all agree that after the bye week last year, the Giants' offense changed a lot, right? And they're probably going to try to carry those changes over into this year. That's fair. In terms of how they play. Well, Barkley finished year with 91 catches and 100 and tw- on 121 targets, right? 58 of his 91 catches came in the first eight weeks. 
Only 33 in the final eight. 71 of his 120 targets came in the first nine weeks, eight weeks, sorry, and 50 came in the final eight weeks. So his use as a receiver dipped dramatically after the bye week. In the first half of the year, Lance, in week two against Dallas, he had 14 catches on 16 targets. In week six against Philly, he had nine on 12 targets, seven against Atlanta, nine on 10 targets, and then week eight against Washington, nine catches on 10 targets. In the second half of the year, he only had eight or more targets three times, and he only had more than five catches once. So I think Barkley normalizes between 70 and 80 this year. Now, that still might end up leading the team in catches. It It might. Yeah. But I think his numbers in terms of raw receptions go down because the Giants' raw number of passes are going to go down. I think they're going to run the ball more frequently, which means more carries for Barkley and maybe more carries for a Wayne Gallman too. And I think when you use play action a lot, which the Giants did a lot more in the second half, you're not thrown to the running back off play action generally. You're thrown to your receivers and your tight ends. And I happen to agree with Doug. I think the guy whose numbers go up the most this year is going to be Evan Ingram. Well, especially if he stays healthy too, you would figure. I mean, that's another big factor. That, of course, is the caveat. Yeah. No, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, I'm looking at Barkley's game log, too. I mean, he did have the game against the Cowboys where he had 14 receptions on 16 targets. That was, though, not the norm well, in he the did second have, half of the season. He did have... Remember, that's the first That was early in the year. season. I'm sorry. I'm looking yeah, at the wrong spot. It's reversed. No, no, that's you're right. why. You're right. I, I was confused that was at the bottom. that first. Yeah. So he had the... He had the ten. He had the fourteen catch game and three nine catch games in the first half of the year. Well, he was on pace to break Odell's record and yeah, Steve, Steve Smith's record potentially, Dude, which is he had fifty eight. He had fifty eight yeah, catches halfway insane. through the year. I remember doing the calculations. So, you look at the second half Tennessee game. He had ten targets, only caught four. You remember that game though was a disaster because Bad of the weather. weather. Yeah, so they couldn't throw it down the field, so they had to dump it down. No game situation certainly impacts that. Yeah, the more and more you look at it, I don't think it's crazy to think that his numbers perhaps would go down. I would still bank on him leading the team in receptions. Whether his numbers dip a little, I'm still banking on him being the leader because I still think they look at him as an asset yeah. when they can get him out in open space. He could do a lot of damage, especially yeah. with Odell not in the no, picture. I agree. I don't think Evan Ingram's going to be a reception volume guy. I think he's going to be more of a big play guy, Evan Ingram. I think they like using him down the field, seams, stuff like that, to have him make some big plays. I think either Barkley, Shepard, or Tate will end up getting the most individual receptions on the team as an individual. I think I could see it going any of three ways, to be honest with you. I'm going to see how they use Shepard and Tate in the passing game. That'll be curious, I think. But if Barkley leads the, the team with 76 to 78 receptions and you know Tate comes in at 72 and Shepard comes in at 68 and Evan, and Evan Ingram comes in at, at 61, would that surprise me? Absolutely not. We'll swap those, and Tate is 78, and Barkley is 72, Shepard is 75, Ingram is 65. That wouldn't surprise me either. Interchangeable personnel. So. Balance. Yeah. Balance is good. Look at, just as a means of comparison, because I brought up Christian McCaffrey, 2017, his rookie year, he had 80 catches, went up to 107, 2018. Now, granted, it's a different team, different offense, but that was the guy that came to mind, and I mean, they did not right. shy away from utilizing him. He went from 113 targets to 124 targets. So the targets wasn't dramatic shift, but, I mean, he had 27 more receptions in year two. You remember, though, too, Cam Newton was dealing with a shoulder injury. That's fair. Could, That's he, a good point. could he get the ball down the field? 
and I don't know. Maybe he is. There wasn't necessarily a huge playmaker there. No, Greg Olson all was relative out. Offensive line issues. Yeah, all things that provide proper context. No I doubt think about the it. better offensive line makes it less likely they throw the ball to Barkley because they don't have to check down. No, and I get that. I mean, you do right. want to take your chances down the field, John, if you have better pass mm-hmm. protection. But at the same time, if Barkley can get a four-yard pass, you know he's capable of turning it into a 15-yard game. I don't look at that as bad offense. 100%. I just look at it as getting one of your best playmakers out in open space. Correct, which is why I still think he's going to be very, very high. I'm just not yeah. sure he's going to hit 90. All right, we got about eight minutes here before we get to Paul Schwartz. Let's get your three calls in before we get there. Marco in Connecticut is up next. Hey, Marco, it's all presented by Coors Light. Hey guys, how are you? We're good, Marco. What's up? Good, good. I I got a question about the undrafted free agents, uh, and I'll ask it, and then I'll get off. But hey, before I get to that, I I thought it was fitting. I I don't know if I've shared this with you guys before. I've been calling a bunch of years, but um, in addition to being a diehard Giants fan, I'm also uh, a real life diehard New Orleans Pelicans fan. No, you're wow. not. Really? Boy, what are the chances? Uh, I sw- swear to God, I grew up a. Uh, I grew up a Charlotte Hornets fan in the 80s, and then when they moved to Oh, Orleans, so you moved with them. Okay. I stayed, I stayed with them. So, so Marco, nice. here's what we got to do. We got to get on the phone and work out an Anthony yeah. Davis trade, okay? <laughs> uh, I, I, John, I was following you all night last night. I read everything. I'm, I'm aware of your, uh, your feelings on it, and I, I don't want to take too much time off the Giants podcast, but I think that really good scenario for, for both teams, and I, I'm thinking now the Knicks have leapfrogged the Celtics as the – Best option for the Pelicans to trade, but right. I'm on board with that. Giddy up! All right, all right. What do you got in the Giants? Uh, Giants. I want to know who you guys think will be when the season's over the most impactful undrafted free agent on the roster this year. Does that have to be Thank one you. of the? Thank you, Marco. Does that have to be an undrafted free agent from this season, Marco? Or could it be an undrafted free agent from past seasons? No, 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 like basically, I'm asking you, someone who you think will make the roster okay. and impact the team. All right, so. all right. Thank you. All right, thank you, Marco. Appreciate the call. You got a list for me? I don't want to miss anybody. Well, I mean, I'm looking through the roster. Uh, they don't necessarily organize it on Giants.com. Hmm, maybe something the production team that's in this room should work <laughs> you're on. So, you're so um, crazy. As we move along you're here. so crazy. Well, I think it'd just be convenient for the host uh, of this program, but that's a whole other subject uh, once man. again. So I'm perusing through the names that were signed. I think... You know, one guy to me that's intriguing, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. I've got to see how he's utilized in camp is Eric Dungy because of his athleticism, Syracuse quarterback. They're supposedly going to try to line him up a little bit at tight end. Let me see it. So I'm not putting him at the top of the list that he's going to be a lock, but it's appealing because of perhaps the more you could do, the more likely you're going to find an opportunity to get on the roster. So that's one name that I think is worthy of throwing out there. I like the linebacker from Texas El Paso. Um, Tuafa? Tafa? Is yeah. that how you pronounce Josiah. it? Josiah. Yeah. I think he's a guy that could, you know, if he can figure out a way to, to outplay Ryan Connolly, who I think will be in the mix there, maybe he can, you know, find some time in linebacker and certainly be an impact player on special teams. That would be my pick. Yeah, those to me, I think, make the most sense. There's a few offensive linemen they brought in. You know, Paul Adams is a guy that comes to mind. We actually talked about him briefly yesterday. A caller was asking about him out of Missouri, you know, 6'5", 317. But 
You look at some of the veterans they brought in. I still think they're going to keep eight offensive linemen because of how some of the starters can be moved around. I don't think there's a necessity to keep nine. I think you put the additional guys on the practice squad. So I I, I just don't know the likelihood of an undrafted offensive lineman making this team. I agree. I think it'd be tough. And, you know, who knows? Maybe even one of the draft picks, that offensive line, might end up being a practice squad guy and not on the roster too. Mike in Oakland, California. Mike, what's going on, pal? Hey, guys. Appreciate being on again. Hey, thanks for calling. Um, sure. Yeah, I really called, really called to talk about the safeties, but just because you, you were talking about um, Saquon, and I just had to throw out there, you know, you both kind of kind of touched on it with um, with a, with a consistent offensive line, barring injury, that is better than anything we've had in I don't know a good five years or so. Yeah, more I like think eight. quality rather than quantity <laughs> is the thing with Barkley because so many of those catches earlier in the year were just like desperate dump offs. Yeah, correct. And if they can get him out into an actual pass route, I mean the the guy could just destroy the league. So yeah, or 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 uh, or, 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 or screen pass on a second and long. You're right. Not oh crap. Eli's going to get killed, dump the ball off to Saquon with a linebacker right in his face. Because if you look at some of those catches earlier in in the year, I mean, the yards per catch is not great. He had 14 catches for just 80 yards in one game, um, nine catches for 50 yards. That's five yards a catch. That's not what you're looking for. Second half of the year, listen to this, against Dallas, four catches, 30 yards. Four catches, 25 yards against Tennessee. Uh, four, yeah. four catches, 27. You know, these aren't big gainers. These are little dumpers. You want to try to get him in space to make big plays. You're right. I'm with you. Yeah, this is this offense is going to look radically different with a competent offensive line and with some continuity. And, I mean, last year was just, man, it was rough for most of the year. So, I, And it's been that way. You know, I, I, I won't even get started, but, you know, my, my frustration with um, wasting years of Eli's career. So I'm, I'm understandable. excited about this year. Um, but the, well, I want to talk for a second about the safeties because I don't really hear people talking about that much. But if you want to talk about a, an opportunity for a major difference on defense, I, I'm excited about all the changes and um, defensive back depth for sure. But my my observation last year is we had probably the worst safety tandem in the league. And, you know, even though I'm a big Landon Collins fan, um, I didn't think Landon played particularly well last year. And one of the things about it was missed tackles. I kept seeing him try to blow the guy up instead of good form tackling and wrap up. I think he – I don't have the stats, but my guess would be he missed more tackles last year than any other year in his career. And Curtis Riley was just like a gaping hole in the back end. I mean, I've never seen so many missed tackles, bad angles, like – I mean, like, if they got past our first, you know, our midline of defenders, everybody was just gone, man. And, like, Antoine Bethea, he's quality. He can still play. And, and I'm really excited about Jabril Peppers and the speed and the ability to cover. So I'm expecting the biggest defense change to be a competent safety group. All right. Appreciate yeah, the call, I think man. That's Thanks a lot. And thanks so much for uh, weighing in in terms of the safety position. I agree. I mean, there's a lot of changes. Sean Chandler's another guy I would consider in that conversation as well. All right, Anthony and Charleston, sorry, we're not going to be able to get to you. we got to wrap up and get to Paul Schwartz here. Um, thank you so much for giving us a call. Next show, Anthony, I'll make sure we get you on right away. I apologize for not getting to you. But we are joined by our guest. And now we're joined by Paul Schwartz from the New York Post. He covers the New York football giants. Paul, you got John Schmelk and Lance Meadow here in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Good morning. How are you? 
Good morning, guys. Um, no Zion Williamson at um, at tight end, huh? No. <laughs> well, we can talk about the draft, though. So yeah, I think we Duke should start player, there. And with the Knicks picking third, Paul. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, I I had the wrong sport again. So with the <laughs> <laughs> let's start with the Giants here because we haven't talked to you since the draft. Um, give me your overall take, Paul, and, and your reaction to what the Giants did on draft night. Well, um, how long we got? Overall take for, <laughs> for eight, ten picks, right? It's, it's you know, I, you know, it's funny. Whenever I sit down and try to analyze, the, you know, how the draft, how the how the uh, Giants did in the draft, and I go on and on and on and on, <laughs> and I think, man, I'm only halfway done, right? <laughs> um, well, I, I think, look, it's a draft that's dominated. The talk is dominated by the first pick, and he's the only player who's probably assured of not playing uh, <laughs> right away. So it's a very strange situation. It just is. It's not a bad situation. It's just a strange one, and yeah. you have to acknowledge that. I'm sure the Giants have to acknowledge that, that when you draft a quarterback with the sixth pick in the draft, he is the focal point of that whole draft class, and yet, like I said, he's going to sit and learn right now behind Eli. So let, let's actually put him aside for a second. I mean, I, I think they got... One, two, three, four. I think they got four players who are all going to contribute on defense as rookies. And and I didn't mean I don't think they're going to star necessarily all four of them, but you know, that's what the Giants had to do, right? That's what Dave Gettleman said they had to do, and Pat Shermer said they had to do is is improve this defense. They've done it somewhat in free agency with guys like Marcus Golden and Antoine Buffet. Um, but you know, I don't think there's any doubt Dexter Lawrence is going to start uh, as one of the, in one of the uh, defensive line spots. DeAndre Baker, I think, will start at cornerback, and he's a very interesting player. I think he's kind of like the anti-old regime pick. He is a guy who doesn't light up the uh, height, weight, speed kind of thing. He's just a very, very good player, and I think that's very important. Uh, so I think the same with Julian Love, the guy in uh, one of the fourth-round fourth pick from Notre Dame. He's not a guy who's going to wow you with measurables. He's just a very good player. He wows you with his tape. Um, and I think possibly the key to this draft could be X-Man. Um, O'Shane uh, at, at, at in the third round from Old Dominion. I think he's one of those make-or-break guys that this franchise has not hit on in years past. Yeah. Mid-round pass rusher. So if he can develop into a pass rusher, I think this this draft class has a chance to fall in line and be quite good. Well, it's interesting. You brought up some of the corners, Paul, and I think that's one of the most interesting positions this offseason because there's been so much turnover there, and with the exception of Janoris Jenkins, Grant Haley, and Tony Lippett, who played about two percentage of the defensive snaps, you know, everybody else wasn't really on the team or at least logging defensive snaps last season. In the draft, you can make the argument, Paul, I mean, they may have found at least two starters in what DeAndre Baker brings to the table on the outside and Julian Love if he can win out on the nickel spot. Yeah, and look, that's not always a great position to be in to have to, you know, draft cornerbacks to start right away. But you know, cornerback is a position; it's very instinctual. Uh, you know, you're on an island often, and and you can kind of get plug and play at cornerback. You learn uh, some of the techniques that the Giants want to use. You learn the terminology, and away you go. You know, you don't have to be the mastermind of the defense. You just have to go do your assignment. Uh, yeah, I, look, it, 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 it's it's not it's not the optimal situation. But if you believe in these young guys, you know the one thing is they both have played. You know DeAndre Baker and Julian Love have played a lot. They played a lot of football for high level programs. You know Georgia and Notre Dame. 
Um, so, you know, there's no injury issue. There's no character issue. There's no they only played one year issue. Uh, they're ready, you know, and, and, and you know what? The Giants are going to have to sink or swim with some of these guys. You're putting some yeah. young guys who are talented, who you think are smart on the field, and you have to deal with their mistakes. Uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather do that with, with guys who you think are talented and hungry and young as opposed to guys who are kind of back-end NFL players who you just signed because uh, stopgap reasons. You know, if you're going to go down, go down in a blaze of youth and, and, and uh, you, know, um, you know, things like that. Yeah, no question about it, Paul. And, and we'll hit on Daniel Jones at the end of the interview, but let's kind of keep on the roster thing because I think it, it's a good place to go with OTA starting next week. And I think the big question about this team is still the defense. I think you feel better about the secondary. Again, you don't even know about rookie corners. It takes them a while to, to figure things out. And you mentioned the X-Man. But bottom line here, Paul, where do you see pass rush coming from? And how do you think James Betcher manages that rotation at the edge position with Kareem Martin, Carter, Zimenez, Golden, and everyone else they have outside? Well, look, pass rush is not going to be James Betcher just sitting back and saying, you know, you go get him, O.C., you go get him straight hand, you go get him tuck. I mean, it's going to have to be a, 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 a by committee, so to speak. And look, you have to develop players. Uh, Lorenzo Carter had what? Uh, five and a half uh, sacks last no uh, four sacks last year right. as a rookie. He's got to develop. He's he's a he's a he's a he's a high draft pick from Georgia who looked pretty good last year at times. So he he's a big, strong. We know he's athletic, lean, uh, seems smart. You know he he's a guy who's got to develop. Why can't he be close to a double digit sacker? And and Marcus Golden is a guy who in 2016 had 12 and a half sacks. So if he can reclaim that. Production under James Betcher, who he worked with in Arizona. You know, he's, he had a, a tough knee injury the last couple of years. He, he, you know, so so these are the things that have to work for them. Uh, can Dexter Lawrence get some push in the middle? Yeah, he can get some push. Can B.J. Hill get some push in the middle? Yes, he showed he can get some. So it's going to be a committee thing. And look, the bar's not set that high. They had 30 last year. I'm not asking them to get 60. I'm asking them to get 42 or something like that, or even 38, and just be a team that can pressure the quarterback more. They're not going to be. Uh, you know, uh, 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 incredible pass rushes, but they have to do it by committee. And, and look, teams develop players, and they have to develop the X-Man as a rookie, and they have to develop uh, Carter as a second-year player. That's all there is to it. Yeah, I think Betcher, Paul, is going to have to to scheme into some sacks, too, and he's going to have to be more aggressive, something I don't think he could do last year because of the issues they had in the secondary. So if these young corners can in fact cover the way the Giants think they can, it might allow Betcher to bring more pressure more often because he's not quite as concerned about getting burnt outside. Well, look, I, I agree that I don't think we saw James Betcher's defense last year. Nope. I just don't think we saw it. I don't think we saw James Betcher's personality on defense last year. We saw little snippets of it. And, you know, people would ask me, you know, after one year, what do you think of James Betcher as a coordinator? I would say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I saw it last year. I think he was he was coordinating with one arm behind his back. So um, I agree. Uh, we they have to, you know you can't just send pressure if if there's no support on the back end. So this all has to work together unless you have supreme talent, which he does not up front right now. So um, I agree. I agree. I think this is this is a work in progress, and that that James Betcher needs to be able to at least go out and say this is my scheme. This is what I want to do here. Now I can do it to a certain degree. And with these young guys, if he develops trust in them sooner rather than later, I think we'll see more of that. 
Well, and what should also help Paul is the fact that he brought in two familiar players who know the scheme, and Antoine Bethay and Marcus Golden, who you brought up in some of your previous answers, and you've been focusing on the front seven, and the rotation of the edge rushers is going to be something to watch. Also, I think, Paul, how James Betcher utilizes his front three, because, you know, you can make the argument Dexter Lawrence, B.J. Hill, Dalvin Tomlinson, all players that perhaps could be used on the interior as opposed to the exterior. From what Betcher said when he spoke to the media the other week, especially Dave Gettleman, how do you see James Betcher perhaps utilizing those three players in particular, considering there may be some similarities there? Yeah, there are, and I think that's interesting. I don't think I don't the way I look at it right now. It doesn't look like a perfect trio to me. It, it, you know, you just don't have the, the the you know the snacks Harrison in the middle. Yeah, you know, I mean Dalvin Tomlinson to me is not that, and um, I don't think Dexter Lawrence is is that. I mean he's big enough to be that, but he's not. I think he's more capable to be on the outside as a defensive end. Uh, because I think he is uh, certainly quicker than Dalvin Tomlinson. So, and you know, B.J. Hill showed that he could, he should be that guy also. He's yeah. not a nose tackle. So I, I, I do think uh, I'll be interested in, in picking James Betcher's brain, and I'll be really interested in looking at the OTAs and seeing how they line up and seeing how they use them and how they switch them around. Because uh, I think potentially all three players are solid, but I don't know if they fit as a trio 100%. And that look, they drafted these guys. They're all young guys. Um, and so that's up to the Giants and Betcher to figure it out. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how they do it because, to me, that it, it's a little bit of a square peg, round hole sort of thing. You know, Paul, finally on defense before we head over to the side of the ball, you know, I think something a lot of people don't talk about enough is what happens in the middle of the Giants' defense. And I think this is something that's killed them consistently over the past three or four years where whether it's the linebackers covering, the safeties covering, when a team needed a big third down, they would throw a 10-yard pass in the middle of the field. The guy would be open all the time, and, and, and they'd convert. And I think how Goodson, Ogletree, and Jabril Peppers play this year in coverage is going to be a huge, huge factor in how good this defense is overall. And I'm curious to see how they get utilized in terms of, are they going to play zone more? Are they going to play man more? Can Peppers take the next step? How do those two inside linebackers cover? I think that's a very underrated part of, of how this defense is going to function with so much focus on the corners and the edge rushers. Well, that's, I think that's a good point, and one of the reasons why so many Giant fans were hoping Devin White would be their pick, because he's a guy who can stay on the field all three downs, but um, he's not on the team, so we don't have to spend much time with him. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Jason Witten basically came out of retirement just so he could play against the Giants twice a year. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it was, had nothing to do with broadcasting or anything. He just said, he said, you know, if we can get the Giants four times a year on the schedule, then um, I'll really come out. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll sign a lifetime contract. It, it's... It's a problem, and I think you know a, a lot of people were a little quick to, to point the finger at Landon Collins, and he had some deficiencies there, but, but he was also forced to be used in certain ways where to make up for, for maybe his deficiencies, it was a difficult situation. You know, when a player does a few things uh, or some things very, very well, how about having him do those? And, and I think yeah. Landon sometimes was stretched to do too much. Uh, I agree. Uh, you know, you know B.J. Goodson, it's a very big year for him, kind of a make-or-break year for him if he can stay healthy. And, you know, I'm not so sure that Ryan Connolly at some point doesn't fit in here. Um, he is not just a, a, a inside linebacker you know, um, um, point of attack uh, guy. You know, he's fast. He's got some speed to him. You know, I, I saw him uh, play for Wisconsin, and he he shoots that gap, and he he can run down guys. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be an all over the field coverage linebacker, but he is fast enough to do it. I mean, I think if you put him in Ogletree in a race, I think Ryan Connolly will win. Wow. So um, um, I I do. Um, 
Now, you know, maybe we can uh, do something for charity and have them race. You know what I mean? And <laughs> I can line up with them, too, and you can bet on me to finish third. Um, I, I, I just so, – so it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Look, it's not, it's not a position of great, great strength. Um, you know, they hope that the back end, as you said, you know, Jabril Peppers, and it'll be very interesting to see how Betcher uses him because yeah. he is a Swiss Army knife. He will play here, there, everywhere. So, um, you know, that, that, you know that, that's what a good coordinator does. He moves his guys around, and, and the quarterback looks. He sees – Peppers here on one play and here on another play. We're talking with Paul Schwartz, covers the Giants in the New York Post. Paul, I want to switch gears to the offensive side of the ball, and they've also continued to transform this offensive line. And when is there a Giants offseason that we don't talk about the offensive line? Of this course, might Paul. be the last one, Lance. <laughs> Maybe, perhaps. This might be the last one. This may be the completion of the transformation, but Kevin Zeitler, Mike Remmers on the right side of the line seem to be the two most significant changes, Paul. How far along do you think this offensive line has come since the tail end of last season to what now they're working with as they get set for OTAs and training camp? Well, it's all new. I mean, uh, you know, um, you know, don't forget um, um, Jalapio was hurt. You know, he was a guy yeah, yep. who was starting and then he virtually missed the whole year. So you, you have the whole new center, right guard, right tackle, you know, with, as you said, Remmers and with Zeitler. You know, look. It looks like a line that, that can function well together. You would think they're veterans. Uh, it's kind of sprinkled in very nicely. You know, you, know, you have Zeitler and Hernandez flanking um, Jalapio or Spencer Pulley. You know, if Jalapio just does not respond. You know, I think Jalapio is the guy they really want to start there, you know, if his, if his ankle responds coming off surgery. Uh, you know, you have Solder a year into – look, I talked to an offensive line guru the other day, and he said to me, coming out of New England, it is just very difficult for these offensive linemen to make a quick adjustment because they're, they're dealing with the master and they're dealing, you know, in Tom Brady, and you're dealing with so many things that make you look good, which is why we see so many offensive linemen on the Patriots play so well for them, and then they go out into the league and they struggle initially. And, you know, Solder did struggle initially. He got better. He got better once Hernandez got better. Um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I think Zeitler and Remmers are good pickups. Um, you know, you know, Remmers is no Pro Bowl player. He's a solid veteran. He was, you know, miscast last year at guard uh, in, in Minnesota. He's a right tackle. He's not a guard, and so you know that was a one-year experiment, which is over with. Uh, but you know, I think they're more. I, I think these guys, Remmers and 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 uh, Zeitler and Remmers, to, to a, a, a stronger degree, I think, are culture, locker room. Tough guys who, who 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 set a great example and 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 are what Gettleman wants as far as culture and leadership and toughness and and I think the guys you really want to center on are, are the center Jalapio and 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 Hernandez you know those are the uh, the future and 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 the younger uh, more interesting players in my mind I think the other three are solid veterans Solder. Zeitler and, and Remmers, solid veterans, you know, and, and if they can come together and be a solid line, um, not a great line, but a solid line, it will do wonders for this team. Yeah, if they can just move into the, you know, top half, middle third of the league, I think that would be real good progress. And, Paul, as long as they play that well, the Giants, despite the fact they traded Odell Beckham Jr. and everyone collectively lost their minds, they have plenty of weapons. I mean, Saquon Barkley can run it. He can catch it. Uh, Evan Ingram's a matchup nightmare for opposing teams in the middle of the field, assuming he stays healthy. Shepard and Golden Tate might not be A1 wide receivers, but they're both very good football players. So if Eli Manning gets the time, to me there's no reason this offense can't jump up to, to, to 24 or so points per game this year. Well, um, you know, we'll see if 24 is enough. But, yeah, well, I mean, you yeah. can't be at 18. There's no question. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's certainly weapons there. Look, any, any offense that you have Saquon Barkley and a capable offensive line, you're going to have some uh, danger there because he's, you know, he's one of the three or four best players in the league right now. He at any position. He just is and can do everything and will even do more this year than he did last year as far as versatility. You know, I know there's some talk that they think they may split him out more. You know, I mean, look, he, he was just scratching the surface last year, and he was great. So, uh you know, we don't even have to discuss him at great lengths. It's just a matter of how much how much they're going to do with him and where, and you know how they're going to wow us. But yeah, I mean, you know, they're 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 you know the receivers individually don't scare anyone, but as a group, can they can they kind of rise above it? You know, here is where the coaching and the scheme and the play calling all comes in because there is not the one big receiver you want to throw to. You know, give fifteen, you know, twelve targets a game. Uh, so here is where Shermer has to really, really earn his his money and scheme things because you know when you line Shepard and Golden Tate outside, you know people aren't adjusting their defense accordingly. So now you have to, you know, can Engram be the difference maker? Can Saquon in a certain spot be the difference maker? Yep. Uh, it, it, it's going to be interesting, you know, and, and and they have some more pieces here, and as long as the line can function to a certain level. Then it's up to Shermer to get these guys in the right places and Eli to get the ball in the right places. And, you know, it's going to have to be like we saw, you know, with Shermer in Minnesota to a certain extent before those receivers really broke out is, wow, they did some really smart things and capitalized. That's what the Giants have to be right now. Paul, we started the conversation with Daniel Jones and... uh Last one for me, I want to close out on that note. You just described the offense of the now. Well, in terms of the offense of the future, I think everybody's question is, when is Daniel Jones going to get on the field? And we could play the coulda, woulda, shoulda game, but Eli Manning is in the final year of his contract, Paul, so there is the land of the unknown entering 2020 at least. We've heard from Dave Gettleman. We've heard from Shermer. The urgency is not necessarily there to put him on the field immediately, but in your mind, how do you see this thing playing out in the transition from Eli to Daniel Jones? Well, I see it uh, in some ways like the transition from Kurt Warner to Eli Manning. Uh, look, as long as the Giants are winning and Eli is playing well, Eli's the quarterback. Um, if Eli's not playing well, it's a problem. If the Giants aren't winning, it's a problem. Now, what's the definition of winning? You know, what I mean, you know, uh, six and two, Eli's fine. Uh, three and three, I think Eli's fine. Um, you know, after seven, eight, nine, ten games, you know, one and seven, no good, like we've seen in the past. Um, you know, two and nine is no good. So, look, the Giants are going to try to compete. Uh, they're going to try to uh, compete for a playoff spot. You know, most people around the league think they cannot do that. As long as they can do that, and Eli is playing at a pretty high level, I think it'll be fine. Look, the organization, as we know, I'm not, you know, telling you guys anything you don't know. They love Eli. They kept him. They think he can still play. Uh, they don't think he can still play today and then want to, you know, you know, kick him out the door tomorrow. They think he can still play. If they didn't, they would just move on and, and, and draft a quarterback and have him, you know, have a journeyman veteran here. And uh, when, he, when, he, when it's time to make the change, they put the rookie in. So they think he can still play. They want to play the season with him. Uh, but if, if things go south in the second half, I think we'll, if, if it happens where there's a mathematical either impossibility they can make a playoffs or kind of a spiritual impossibility that, look, we know we're not making a playoffs, then they're going to they're make a change. They're going to they're get Daniel Jones ready to play and look on the schedule and figure out where it makes sense. Uh, but you're right, there's no urgency to do that because they have Eli. He's not a guy you just want to cast aside. He's done too much for this franchise. But 
look, when the replacement is in the building and he's in the room with you and he's on the practice field with you, it's a matter of time. Now, whether it's a season, whether it's a half a season, whether it's three quarters of a season, whether it's a season and a half, it's coming, right? It's coming, and it's just a matter of when. Paul, great stuff. We appreciate the time. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Paul. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Paul Schwartz of the New York Post, our guest on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Thank you for joining us today, folks. It's all presented by Coors Light. For Lance Menno, I'm John Schmuck. We'll see you tomorrow at noon. Have a good one, everybody. Have a good one.